Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Mercy Health serves patients battling opioid addiction in Ohio and Kentucky. Both states are in the top five for overdose rates in our nation. And last year was the worst year on record for opioid overdose deaths in Hamilton County, where Mercy Health is headquartered. But the tide may be turning. When it became clear that treating, stabilizing, and releasing overdose victims who came to their ED wasn't working, Mercy Health decided to make some wholesale changes to their approach in addressing addiction as a healthcare provider, and they're beginning to see the payoff. In today's podcast, we'll talk about their new approach to helping those struggling with substance use disorder through a program they rolled out system-wide last year by the name of the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative. Joining me on this podcast are Dr. Navdeep Kang, the Mercy Health Director of Operations for Behavioral Health Services in Cincinnati, Ohio. Also from Mercy Health is Dr. Larry Graham, the President of Behavioral Health Services. And finally, the co-founder and CEO of Cincinnati-based FindLocalTreatment.com, Raja Gupta. We begin our podcast today with Dr. Kang. As we began our conversation, Dr. Kang talked about what happened when the opioid epidemic descended on their community. Yeah, what we found was that, uh, you know, we, we had patients who would come into the ED for a brief observation uh, and then be released. Uh, we would offer referral options uh, in the form of a phone number or a list of phone numbers that someone could call to get connection, to get connected to outpatient or residential addiction treatment services, if that's really what the person wanted. But really all of that work was incumbent on the patients to take up themselves after they left the ED. Uh, some might have taken this up on that, some might not. Uh, but it really wasn't well-coordinated care, right? So for a, a cardiac patient who comes into the ED with a cardiac event, we typically don't just give them a card with a phone number or a list of phone numbers and say, uh, you know, call these numbers yourself when you get home and good luck finding a cardiologist. And so as we, as we sought to say, uh, as, as we sought to look at how we were doing things and redefine that standard, it became clear that we had a pretty big project on our hands in terms of standardizing our approach to treatment in all of our settings, not just in our emergency department. And so we simply sought to educate ourselves. There's good science, there's good literature that talks about how a large health system could approach this challenge. Uh, luckily, the content might have been a little new or historically foreign to us, but the underlying process is very similar to any other healthcare condition. And that was really the paradigm shift, I think, for us, and not just for us as a health system, but, but for our community, that... Uh, you know, oftentimes, if you were to rewind the clock 10 years, a lot of folks would 
grapple with this idea of addiction as a healthcare condition. Instead, it's oftentimes looked at as a moral failing or as something that warrants a criminal justice response as opposed to a healthcare response. And instead, uh, as we educated ourselves and then sought to educate our community, this very large paradigm shift of addiction as a chronic relapsing medical condition, which is oftentimes lethal, especially in the case of opioid use disorder, that really uh, started to gain some traction. Next, Dr. Kang talks about their decision to standardize care in all settings. What we sought to do was standardize care in all of our settings, not just in our emergency department. If a patient is identified as having a need of primary care, what do we do for that patient? If we have a patient who's in the hospital for some other condition and we find that they're going into withdrawal, then how can we clinically manage that withdrawal in a comfortable and compassionate way, but then ultimately connect the patient to outpatient care? If we apply this chronic disease model to addiction, then we understand that you don't manage a chronic condition in a hospital setting. You're only in an emergency room for a few hours or in a hospital for a few days, typically. And so other chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, those are managed on an outpatient basis in the long term. Exacerbations or when uh, you have acute situations that arise, those are taken care of in a hospital. And if you put all of those elements together, then you have a continuum of care in an area of medicine that, frankly, one didn't exist before. You had a collaborative model that you developed for addiction treatment. When did you roll that out? This is an interesting question. So uh, our work is a few years old at this point, actually, almost three years. Uh, this collaborative approach to care actually uh, was brought to Cincinnati uh, probably halfway through that timeline. But given Mercy Health's large footprint, we started our work elsewhere in the state of Ohio and then incrementally brought it to Cincinnati, uh, means testing it in a smaller market where we had uh, more of the services underneath our own umbrella as a health system. So if you can imagine a care continuum generally looking like hospital services, outpatient addiction treatment services, and residential, uh, the more of those elements that you have under your umbrella, the more of the continuum you can control and make sure that the processes you roll out are being done effectively. And so with each iteration, we reduced the uh, number of services underneath the Mercy Health umbrella and increased the number of services that were provided by other groups. And then when we brought the model to Cincinnati in the middle of 2017, uh, we greatly expanded all aspects of the equation. In other words, instead of just one Mercy Hospital in one county, it would be five Mercy Hospitals in a major metropolitan area, nine emergency departments. And instead of one outpatient addiction treatment provider, it would be 14 outpatient addiction treatment providers, many of whom have multiple locations around town. So the scale to which we sought to take the idea once we uh, rolled it out in the middle of 2017 and started calling it the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative was, was the great challenge of last year. I asked if they had any preliminary results to share. Uh, every life that's taken by the epidemic probably signals 10 more that are shattered somewhere else, right? Their family, their friends, their loved ones. Um, and so... Using those statistics as a starting point is helpful. If you look at most communities in our state, 
the year-over-year uh, increase in overdose deaths is around 30 percent. Uh, what we're seeing so far in Cincinnati is actually a 30 percent reduction in overdose deaths from prior year. Next, Dr. Kang explains how the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative came to be. Yeah, the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative is a multi-agency, multidisciplinary effort to create treatment on demand. And so the, uh, the, the treatment on demand piece is what's important. Uh, in many communities, ours included historically, there was this lack of capacity that uh, everyone found frustrating. So this is patients, families, providers. Uh, you can imagine if you're trying to help a patient, you have a conversation with them about getting into recovery, they're agreeable to do that, and the response is, well, we can get you started next month. <laughs> that, that doesn't really go very well, and you, miss you can window. oftentimes miss your opportunity. Yep. Uh, yeah, correct. And so the, the windows of opportunity uh, with opioid use disorder specifically are narrow, and they come to in frequently. So if you miss one, you could end up with a bad outcome. Uh, so terribly frustrating in a lot of different ways. And so this idea was to say, instead of just building more services, building a bunch of addiction treatment centers, is there a way to leverage capacity in a shared way as a community and put the patient at the front of every decision when it comes to uh, access? And so, uh, so Mercy Health sought to be the backbone organization, which would put a number of treatment providers together into this collaborative. Uh, we would share data, we would share clinical and operational best practices, and ultimately the groups would share patients. Even though historically they may be business competitors, the unfortunate reality of the situation that we're in right now in the community is that there's plenty of work to be done in this space and everyone can be busy. Um, and so it's really just a matter of working together and leveraging shared capacity. Next, we talk about how the collaborative is able to provide 24-7 treatment on demand. So at the end of the day, there has to be a way to enter treatment around the clock 24-7. And this is where the third element comes into play of our model. So the first, again, was Narcan distribution, the ability to save a life in the moment, then have a discussion about getting into treatment, which must be provided on an on-demand format. The third element is health system integration. So in Cincinnati, we're talking about multi-hospital system in the form of Mercy Health. Uh, but this could be applicable in a uh, rural community with a critical access hospital. Once you put together public health data, emergency responders, first responders like EMS, fire, police, and hospital-based medical services that emergency and inpatient, once you combine all of those elements, then you have that comprehensive continuum of care where you didn't have one before. So basically the idea is that 24-7 access can only be provided if you have access outside of business hours and on weekends. Emergency rooms are open 24-7. If you have a standardized protocol on how to evaluate and initiate treatment from an emergency room, you can connect patients from that hospital directly to outpatient providers who are, again, leveraging a shared capacity to ensure that patients are getting started in outpatient treatment the same day or the next day. So there really is no wait time. It could be Saturday night at midnight, which is the problem that we sought to, to solve. How do you solve the Saturday at midnight conundrum? You can have a patient come into an ER on Saturday at midnight, have treatment initiated from the emergency room and from the hospital, and then continued 
on Monday with an outpatient addiction treatment provider. These are different organizations, but if they coordinate care together through good communication and through a shared understanding of clinical best practices, then that patient gets started on treatment and continued on treatment over the course of just like that weekend from the example that I'm telling you. Dr. Kang talked about sharing the protocols and standards of the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative. We are happy to share everything that we have created. So when it comes to the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative, there are clinical protocols, there are operational protocols, and everything that we've developed in Cincinnati has been open source from the from uh, our initial moments of inception. Our intent was to means test our hypotheses. If they make sense, then we'd want to share them with anyone else who's interested. Um, if they're far away, then they can take those ideas, they can make them their own. If they're close by, they can participate in our collaborative because you know, we all have a shared stake in our community. At the end of the day, I think what's most important to understand, though, is that uh, is the why uh, of our ideas, like why all of these elements fit together as opposed to how. So Narcan distribution, as an example, there is a how that was, that, that was done in Cincinnati, how that was funded, how the distribution actually works. That might not work exactly the same way in another community, but the why, why is Narcan distribution an essential element would apply anywhere. The same with treatment on demand, the same with health system integration. So learning from our model is one thing, uh, but then also taking that and applying it in another community in a way that fits for that community is essential. The experts and the resources for each community actually reside there, right? Not, not necessarily in Cincinnati where, where we're doing our work right now. I asked Dr. Kang, what's next on the horizon? So instead of focusing on the number of people dying from opioid use disorder, we intend to shift our attention to the number of people living with opioid use disorder as functional contributing members of society who are working towards their dreams again. And so there are other elements then that we need to add to our collaborative, to our community-facing discussion. Other communities will be challenged to do the same. The first step is bending the mortality curve, right? It's stopping the bleeding, stopping the number of people that are dying. Uh, but once you do that, you realize that there is actually 10 times more work to be done in terms of uh, uh, recompensating people, recompensating families, and, and, and putting, putting families and people back together. Uh, that's not done from a health system. That's not done from a, a single addiction provider. That, that's done at the community. Uh, and so this is an all-hands-on-deck kind of challenge, an unprecedented one. Uh, but if we start at the beginning, if we work together with what we have in each community, we take it one step at a time, uh, it can really be done. Joining me now is Dr. Larry Graham, who's the president of Behavioral Health for Mercy Health in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, Doctor, welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. I think one of the most uh, difficult things to do for healthcare providers, and, and many of them are struggling with this right now, are figuring out the best practices, what that should look like for substance use disorder. Now, you've done spent a lot of time on this and done a lot of work, you and your team. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I think you're you're right about uh, systems looking at national standards of care, and that's often that's an evolving process. So, I think from the get-go, we understood that from an ambulatory standpoint, 
that treatment on demand was really uh, the only benchmark that made sense. But uh, but Mercy Health obviously touches patients in a lot of different arenas, including the emergency department, primary care, specialty care, and um, so part of it was uh, trying to decide how to uh, uh, come up with clinical guidelines so that whether you're a nurse in the emergency department or on our med surge floor uh, or an MA, one of our outpatient practices, that you had access to information about um, what we should do and how we should be treating our patients. And so, you know, there's a broad spectrum of education that had to occur, starting with uh, bias and stigma. Um, there was a lot of that that you have to deal with as a, sorry about that. There's um, a lot, lot of that you have to deal with in terms of uh, even our own staff not knowing how to communicate effectively with patients who have chemical dependency. And uh, when we talk to our patients, a lot of times they'll tell you that they avoid healthcare systems. And when you ask why, it's largely because they're treated so poorly uh, by the staff. You know, they're they're judged, they're made to feel ashamed of themselves, and of course they're already struggling with that. They don't really need you to reinforce it. Sure. Uh, so part of part of the standards of care was to re-educate our staff. Um, uh, I think Mercy was very uh, forward-thinking when they allowed me to stand up voluntary inpatient detox uh, so that if a patient comes in and they want to make a change and they meet inpatient criteria, we can, we can detox them on our med surge floors, and we equipped our staff with uh, uh, an order set to help them do that in a, in a national standard of care way. Right there in the ED. They can come in, and if they want to get help you know, after OD or whatever, or just voluntarily, if they want to come in and detox, they can do that? Yeah, they can. Uh, I mean, most of our patients are, are sent in from one of our collaborating agencies uh, when they have a patient that that they feel they can't manage as an outpatient for detox. Largely, a lot of opiate detox can be managed as an outpatient, but there are times when you have co-occurring medical conditions or just severity of use that you meet inpatient criteria. So um, if our collaborating agencies send patients in or if you present yourself to the emergency department, uh, and, and again, and you meet criteria, we can admit you to our med surge floors and uh, our uh, hospitalists have been trained to uh, use the opiate uh, withdrawal scale, and, uh, and we will get you detox. And then the three to four days that that takes, uh, that allows us time to coordinate with our uh, outside agency so that we can be seamless in terms of transitioning you right, right away to uh, a prescriber. That's one of the touch points at Mercy Health where you have integrated your kind of an on-ramp for treatment. What are some of the others? Well, the, um, uh, you mentioned the emergency department. So the other thing that we have the capability of doing, for example, is bridging the gap. So if someone comes in at, uh, I don't know, 7 o'clock at night, and even though through our collaborative we, they can be seen by a prescriber, you know, early the next morning, uh, uh, we do want our EDs to feel empowered enough to either uh, – keep them an observation uh, in the ED or uh, prescribe, uh, not prescribe, but dispense uh, buprenorphine if that's what's needed to keep them out of acute withdrawal and uh, help them get where they want to go. So there's whole protocols around that. Um, we also want our uh, communities to have access to Narcan. So part of it was 
uh, whether it's a primary care office, an ED setting, that if you're someone who has chronic opiate use, either prescribed or, or illicit, uh, you really need to have access to Narcan. And uh, uh, that's one of the things that the Surgeon General uh, is currently promoting, is that if, if you, are, you are someone who takes opiates on a regular basis, you absolutely need to have Narcan at your disposal. Uh, so we're trying to support that initiative as well. What about utilizing your primary care offices as touch points as well? Yeah, I think that's that's really the uh, the evolution of things because right now a lot of the national conversation is around opiate deaths and how to how to stop the bleeding from that. But I think what you're going to see as we move forward is um, how do we live with opiate dependence because uh, like any chronic relapsing illness, patients are going to be living with this for some time. And I think primary care has a role in that situation. So if someone is acutely in need of um, specialty services, you know, we can send them, set them up with one of our clinics, uh, one of our collaborative partners, and, you know, they can get the family treatment, the occupational help, the, uh, all, of the, all of the biopsychosocial support that they need. But there will be a point, a point in time where they just need the medication that they need. And I think in that situation, our primary care offices have a role in monitoring and maintaining that. Uh, and then if they relapse, then you can kick them back to the specialty clinics. Um, but I, So what I'm trying to advocate for is our primary care docs that become wavered, uh, which means they can prescribe the uh, medication-assisted therapy medication and uh, educate themselves about those things so that they can participate more actively. And we've had, um, we've had pretty good response to that. We've had a number of primary care champions who have helped us um, design progress notes and design templates so that we meet state requirements uh, from an office-based setting. Because uh, there's, there's a lot of protocol that you have to follow when you engage in that practice. What else should our listeners know about Mercy Health and your new approach, this revised approach, to addressing substance use disorder? Well, I think Mercy Health has a unique um, situation because our, our breadth across the state of Ohio is so large and our reach is so large. But I think what I would want people to know is that we really are interested in providing compassionate uh, care uh, with a national standard uh, quality of care, and if you're struggling with addiction, and I mean substance use disorders writ large, um, I want folks in our communities to know they can come to a Mercy site and they'll get the treatment that they need. It may not always be at the Mercy facility. We do a lot of partnering and collaborating, but, um, but we will absolutely be able to get you in in a time-efficient uh, way. Uh, what you should not expect is to be sent off with a, a list of places to call and with a good luck getting into one of those places. You know, we don't do that for our cardiac patients, and uh, we, we shouldn't be doing that for our chemically dependent patients, and uh, I'm very happy of the progress we've made so far. Still have a lot of work to do. But. Any comments on your collaborative effort with your findlocaltreatment.com group? Yeah, findlocaltreatment.com, I think, has really been a game changer in southwest Ohio. Um, and, I, and for this reason, there's been a lot of electronic referral platforms that are up and running. 
SAMHSA from the federal government has had one up in, for years. The problem with every single one of them is that the information is dated. And if you're someone who's at that moment where you're considering, do I need to make a change, you are not going to make 15 phone calls. It just it doesn't happen. And so findlocaltreatment.com has found a way of engineering into the uh, program an incentive so that the agencies are updating their availability on a daily basis. So what that means, if you're someone plugging in your information to that web portal, is that when you see those uh, agencies pop up, you can tell from the website, can I go there today and see a prescriber? Not an intake person, not a counselor. All of those things are necessary as part of the process. But am I going to be able to see a prescriber today? And, um, and that really has been a game changer. So that first phone call you make is going to hit pay dirt, and um, you're going to be able to get in treatment. Let me ask you one more thing, Doctor. One of the stumbling blocks about these programs um, of getting someone in quickly seems to be the assessment. In in some municipalities, the assessment seems to take an inordinate amount of time. Have you found that to be the case in some of your experience? And uh, also, a related question, have you found a way to kind of streamline that? It seems as though these assessments, even over the phone, have taken 45 minutes to an hour in some cases. No, you're exactly right in terms of, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. That's why I was taking 30 to 60 days to get people to see a prescriber because they'd see an intake person. They'd, they'd go through that process. They were referred to a counselor for X number of visits before they would schedule you to see a prescriber. And, you know, we don't do that in any other situation. We don't take our emphysema patients and say, well, we're going to send you the intake, and if you can convince us that you've stopped smoking for the last 60 days, then you get to see a doc. So Sounds ludicrous, really doesn't it, when you put it that way, when you compare it that way? <laughs> doesn't it? It, really does. yeah, it? It absolutely is. And so one of the things Mercy did at their expense was uh, they enabled each of these agencies in our collaborative group to access our electronic medical record free of charge to them. And so that really did truncate their intake process, which, as you as you mentioned, sometimes was taking as long as 75 minutes. Well, now, you know, for me that was senseless because we have the demographic information. We have their insurance information, if they have insurance. We've done a talk screen. We have their, H, their history and physical. So now we provide all of that so that, you know, you don't have to recollect that information. And so intake can be as little as 15 to 20 minutes. And so that immediately, you know, quadrupled their ability uh, to get people into their clinic. Dr. Graham shares how they shared data between healthcare providers. What about HIPAA? How did you how do you get around that, or how do you address that, or maybe you don't have to? Well, HIPAA and and the more specific uh, 42 CFR regulations um, really uh, mean that you have to obviously gain consent from the patient in terms of sharing information. So. Um, uh, agencies that we have a business uh, agreement with, they're allowed to be in our uh, integrated electronic medical record. Uh, that's not a HIPAA violation, but but we do um, uh, we do ask that the patient consent, that they know where their information is being shared, uh, and so that's part of our consent process. Okay, so you've got an agreement with each each of your agencies as you onboard them, and then uh, with each of the patients, if you know. Uh, 
if they begin the in, in the front end of that assessment, you just ask for approval, and that's that. Yeah. Okay. And we, we do want to make sure, I mean, the whole idea, uh, we understand that patients are still exposed to stigma from physicians, and, um, you know, and that's really the point is, you know, if my general physician knows about this treatment, is it going to somehow negatively affect his impression of me or my treatment in other ways? You know, we're hoping that we're making inroads about that and as care becomes more integrated. Uh, but between now and whenever that happens, uh, we still have to follow the letter of the law around HIPAA and 42 CFR. Joining me now is the co-founder and CEO of Cincinnati-based FindLocalTreatment.com, Raj Gupta. So, Raj, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you provided an infographic today, which kind of blew me away. It stated that 72% of addiction treatment facilities have room for more patients. So let's start at the beginning. Why is it so difficult for people to find the treatment that they need? Greg, you know, when we, when we first began our journey, we talked to you know, hundreds of families and individuals across the state um, who are in recovery, and we asked them this question. Um, and the story that we heard over and over again um, that is far too common is that it takes months and months and months to find the right type of addiction treatment. So when we began to dig into this further, it became pretty obvious why this was the case. So um, in a particular region or community, there could be you know, 20, 20 addiction treatment providers. Each one of them accepts different insurances, um, different ages, different genders, um, some treat. Um, some substances and some don't. Um, so what you really have are um, a variety of treatment providers who are constantly changing. Um, and one of the other factors that makes you know this uh, you know a complex system is that some providers are accepting patients and some are not, and that that also is changing. So really, the reason why people it takes people so long to find addiction treatment um, is because but the addiction treatment industry is always changing, and connecting them to real-time and accurate information is a challenge. Um, and that's and that's why we that's why we built this platform. Now that Raj framed the problem, I ask him to share how the platform they developed solves it. A individual um, struggling with substance disorders, family members, and even clinicians, the ability to access findlocaltreatment.com. They're able to um, type in their insurance, their age, which substances they're struggling with. Um, you know, those type of demographic information, and they're able to connect to um, which providers can actually accept them based on their criteria, and most importantly, which providers actually have capacity to accept them on that day. So, you know, as I mentioned, one of the biggest challenges, um, you know, that, that our platform solves is ensuring that any person can know which provider actually has capacity and which do not. Um, and because that information can change every day, it's imperative that providers um, are updating, you know, if they have availability or not every day. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what the platform does. So the people that do the update to keep it real time, or, or I'll call it near real time, are your actual right. partner providers? Correct. Um, and it's important to know that on so many of the systems that exist today and other solutions that, um, you know, are being tried across the country are what we call passive. Um, and what that means is the, the onus of updating doesn't fall on the provider. 
um, it falls on the organization um, that's trying to provide some type of platform that does similar things. So, um, you know, if what we realize as we talk to many providers is if we expect providers to, you know, to email us every single time there's a change, it simply is, a, is an unrealistic expectation to have. And the reason is so much is changing um, every single week, not just capacity, but, you know, insurance contracts are being renegotiated. Um, and, you know, these providers are moving as, as the demand of the community moves. So if in six months, you know, alcoholism becomes more pressing, then, you know, they change their services to, to address that need. So we knew from the very beginning that if a real-time system like this was to be built, we had to figure out a way that providers are updating this information um, every day. Um, and that's, and that's, what, that's what is happening in Cincinnati and, and hopefully um, in other parts of the state as well. Next. Raj shares the secret of what motivates providers to update the platform with their information daily. The, the technology component of this platform, you know, makes it so that for providers to update their capacity daily, um, it really is something that's like automated um, on our end, and it takes them less than five seconds in a day to indicate if they are or not. So we tested many, many different ways um, where we could ensure that it takes providers less than three minutes in a month to provide that information every single day, um, you know, so that people in the community and families can see real-time information. The second component that makes this all work is an incentive. Um, you know, the way that our information um, is displayed on the website depends on whose information is most up-to-date. So if you don't update every single day, then that, then you just aren't, um, shown as as the first option to people that are searching, and what that does is it creates an environment where um, where we've made it extremely simple for providers to update their information, and there's a very strong incentive to do so. You're becoming like a Google for your local providers there, in that if you're rewarding them for doing something, in this case, rather than being monetary, it's it's for complying with this program and updating it on a regular basis, daily basis. And if they do that, then they're going to have better listing, better ranking. Right. That's correct. Probably, you probably never heard it put quite that way, but that's what it sounds like you're doing. <laughs> no, no, it is. And, and I think it's, it's a, no, Greg, it, it's a, it's a reality in the space. And I think one of the things that, you know, we, we hope to take across um, the state and other parts of the country is, you know, you, we really have to work within the way that um, the addiction treatment industry operates. Um, so we want to make sure that we incentivize the behavior that truly provides the most value to real people, to real individuals. And this starts with accurate information, um, which, you know, in this, this industry, we always, we always talk about this as a team is, you know, we right now, the, the addiction treatment industry in general operates, you know, as if we still, as, as if it was the 1970s, you know, um, you know, the, the de facto way of connecting to treatment is picking up the phone. Um, and, and that's not, that's not um, a vision of the world that, you know, that we have. And, and I think that in order to move this industry into one that is accountable, um, that, that is able to provide information to patients that they deserve, um, we need to create systems that, that incentivize that behavior. Um, and, and that's a really, really big part of, um, you know, of the system that we've built. So without getting too geeky, my, my curiosity is up, though. 
how were you able to make it so that it's just three seconds for them to be, you know, update their listing on a daily basis? I mean, that's phenomenal. How did you automate that? Um, well, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Um, so the way that we really did it, in the, in the most simple terms, imagine, you know, imagine if in, if, in the, if, if in the morning you woke up and someone gave you a yes or no note and you had a circle one, that action takes almost no time at all. Um, that's essentially what we've done, um, you know, via the automated system. So really, to put it in practical terms, like the daily the, survey, the clinical director. Exactly right. Yeah. A, a, a daily, it's like a daily survey, a daily note that basically tells, that basically mm-hmm. asks, "Are you accepting patients today? Yes or no?" Awesome. I mean, such a simple answer for such a tough, tough problem. So the way that our partnership works is. Um, one of the biggest problems that they face um, in emergency departments um, is the very basic problem that thousands of families and individuals have um, in their houses, which is when someone comes into the emergency department and asks for addiction treatment, which is something that's becoming a lot more common across our state and country, um, a first responder or a clinician um, or a care coordinator within the emergency department, what information can they give someone who needs treatment? And ultimately, it comes down to the same problem. They need to know which providers in their community are accepting patients and which providers can accept the patient based on that patient's criteria, such as insurance and age. So when, as we were building this platform, you know, Mercy Health created an addiction treatment collaborative um, with, you know, some of the, with like the 14 or 15 treatment providers in Cincinnati we were able to build out this system that enables, um, you know, real-time availability and real-time matching um, to these provider services. And today, um, if you go into uh, a Mercy Health emergency department um, or if you get a screening done, um, you know, we call that an an expert screening, um, but now any clinician, any care coordinator within the emergency department now has direct access to the platform. So, when someone comes in and asks for addiction treatment, they're able to use the platform and refer to a treatment program um, that they can be confident is accepting patients. Um, and oftentimes they can just make a phone call right there and set up an assessment. Who else is using the platform? I understand you've got some QRT teams plugged into it. Right. Yep. Um, so anyone that potentially can come in contact with an individual or a family member that is seeking help um, in the Cincinnati region likely uses this platform. So not just um, quick response teams, um, but you know, teams of care coordinators, call centers. Um, and right now Mercy Health is the first health system um, to integrate this into their emergency department. But um, our goal is uh, to make this something that's integrated within all the health systems in the region. Um, and you know, whether one of the things that's really important to keep in mind in this space is there are multiple doors of entry. So, you know, we have seen an incredible amount of, of, of volume um, in terms of people who prefer searching online. Um, it's, it's how so many people in our demographic um, and in general prefer to search for anything today. Um, but there are a subset of people who prefer just calling the call center. There are people who prefer talking to someone on the quick response team. And each of these avenues, they all kind of filter to the same central issue, which is being able to make that connection to a facility 
that has availability, that can accept that patient based on their criteria, that anyone that ha faces that issue can use this platform to make that connection. And you know, we're very thrilled to say that so the vast majority of people that fit into that bucket um, currently use the platform in Cincinnati. And how will you go about partnering with other providers in the rest of the state? Or I guess to flip that, how would they go about partnering with you? You know, the best way um, is just to get in contact with one of us or one of our partners. Um, the easiest way is to send me an email. Um, and um, that's just raj at findlocaltreatment.com. Um, we, you know, we are very clear um, from the very beginning that, you know, we are looking to, to make any partnership possible. Um, you know, our work becomes so much easier and we can expand this platform to so many more regions when we have more health systems working together. But I think it's, it's also important to be, um, you know, to understand, the, again, the, the realities of the space. And, um, you know, health systems, unfortunately, um, you know, are, are competitive. And I feel like, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, must be, must be critical at this time is for, you know, for, for us to set aside that competition and to make sure that health systems actually work together um, you know, to ensure that our communities are healthier, um, especially fighting this crisis. And, and I think we're, we're starting to see that. Um, so, uh, you know, so for anyone that, for any health system that uh, is looking to integrate this technology or wants to learn from what we've done in, in the, the Cincinnati region, at least, um, they can contact us directly. Really understand that this is a fight that's going to define our generation. Um, you know, the reason why I say that is because I think it's, it's easy um, to kind of under, to get into a mindset where we think that this is something that we can just defeat in, in a year or a couple of years or maybe even five. Um, but, you know, when you talk to clinicians, when you talk to families, and you just see how widespread this is, you know, and a great example of this is, you know, the majority of people who search on our platform are between the ages of 18 and 36. Um, so this is a problem that has affected all corners of our society. Um, and what we need to make sure we do is build things for the long term, um, make sure that we partner together um, to share our knowledge and to really get ready for um, just thinking about how do we make our communities healthier, not just five to 10 years from now, but the next 20, 30, 40. And um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of great things. There's a lot of things to be optimistic about. Um, and I just want to make sure that other communities know that, um, you know, we are, we are ready to you know, take our technology to places that can benefit from it um, and that, you know, we are more um, excited than anything else to see all these amazing partners who, um, you know, who have a lot of influence in their communities come together to solve this common problem. We've been joined today by Dr. Navdeep Kang, the Mercy Health Director of Operations for Behavioral Health Services in Cincinnati, Ohio. We've also been joined by Dr. Larry Graham, the president of Behavioral Health, also from Mercy Health, and Raja Gupta, the co-founder and CEO of Cincinnati-based FindLocalTreatment.com. Together, they introduced us to the Mercy Health Addiction Treatment Collaborative, a new program integrated throughout the Mercy Health healthcare system that utilizes the FindLocalTreatment.com database to find treatment on demand for those in need. This innovative program incorporates system-wide touch points, data sharing between providers, real-time treatment availability, and is a collaborative effort 
between many providers in the Cincinnati area. In short, the program's a game-changer for their community. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.